This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Big thank you to Monique Sabir for the last three hours of Out on the Patio. She'll be back next week between 4 and 7pm. Uh, joining you this evening from Bite Into It, uh, Mr Dan Salmon. Good evening. And me, Vanessa Tolka. Because I'm not that low. <laughs> Wasn't it amazing listening to Monique for the last few hours? Oh, I love that. I love that show. I love Monique. And, and listen for the whole three hours or a minute. That was one of the nicest uh, things was, I've ever heard anyone say on radio. It was brilliant. Um, <laughs> and she really does, you know, send her love out to listeners. Indeed. Which is something we don't do that often. Maybe, you know, do you think we, we should say I love you to our listeners a little bit more? I think it's implied. We don't need... I, I mean, so. we, we do We do love you all. We do love you all. They're, I hope people know. You bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Look, tonight we are very excited to bring you another show where we speak to an entrepreneurial type. Her name's Eleanor Toolman and she is from Mimitec, um, who are working in the agricultural technology space. So we hope to bring you tales of robot chickens later on this evening. <laughs> and I think it was Brian who said to me earlier, you know, do robot chickens dream of electric sheep? <laughs> that's that's mixing far too many metaphors. It's very good. It's that very is good. good. But yeah, and when, um, when we talk about robot chickens, we're not talking about the Adult Swim TV show either. Something no, much more exciting and much excellent. more interesting. Yeah. Yes. So, Dan, what's happening in news of the world this week? It's a big week for data protection because this Friday, the 25th of May, the uh, European Union's General Data Protection Regulation comes into effect. Now, you may have noticed, you being everyone who's listening and me and you, Vanessa, even. Um, I may, may have noticed. You may have noticed. Uh, that you're receiving a lot of emails from uh, companies that are basically updating their, uh, I suppose, end-user licence agreements and various uh, policies around what they, what your data or what they do with your data, um, asking you to update your own personal details a lot of the time. This is uh, in readiness for the uh, implementation of, of this law. Now, um, even though it is an EU regulation, it is something that because a lot of our, uh, you know, tech companies are multinationals, let's not beat around the bush there, a lot of companies that operate in Australia are actually going to start becoming compliant with EU uh, regulations. And that does have an implication for companies and consumers in Australia. Now, um, if you are an Australian business that is wondering whether you're actually covered by the GDPR, um, you might want to have a think about whether you have an office within the European Union. Um, If your website enables EU customers to order goods and services in a European language other than English um, or to uh, make payments in euros, Uh, if your website mentions customers or users in the EU or if you track individuals in the EU on the internet and uh, use data processing techniques to profile individuals, you probably shouldn't be doing that but if you that do. tracking one is so interesting because mm. i think it's one that it's really easy for people to miss it can be built into you know digital marketing marketing services that they use mm. and you can think oh well i just you know sure we are an australian company we might not think of ourselves as global but as soon as someone buys something That's from right. your thing in france um, you are covered by the the GDPR. Um, I, there there are Australian l- laws. Uh, I think we touched on this a few weeks ago. That there there are Australian regulations that are coming in. That uh, there's a bit of crossover between the uh, Australian laws and the new EU laws, but they're by no means exhaustive. And you probably should, if you are con- uh, maybe not concerned, but if you think that it might affect you, uh, it's probably time to 
look into that. Uh, one thing I've, I've, I just wanted to say of um, the Daily Mash, the uh, satire website from the UK, sent an email to their uh, subscribers that basically said, um, hold on one second, I want to make sure I'm saying this right. Oh, I've lost it. Oh, Dan, why have you done this to yourself? But it, <laughs> <laughs> the Daily Mash is an excellent source. It is an excellent Satirical source. news reporting. It, well, no, it was, it was basically um, our plans for continuing to abuse your data. And it's like, if you didn't realise well, this is what we were doing, then why did you even bother signing up in the first place? And I think that's probably the most honest one that we had. It was very well written. It was very well written. And I'm sorry that I've messed that up. <laughs> Not at all. Oh, uh, dear. Not at all. So, Vanessa. So, uh, in investment news, I guess, that crosses over with all the tech stuff that we love. Safety Culture have raised $60 million as Tiger Global Blackbird and Scott Farquhar. Well done. I, have, I can never say that name. Farquhar? Yes. Yeah, that one. Um, all pitch in to, to help fund them. So they're a technology company that are founded in Townsville and uh, it's significant because this is one of the largest ever Australian startup funding rounds. And it's gotten attention from this New York fund. So Tiger is a New York fund. So it's it, it's been a real challenge for Australian startups trying to attract um, major VC uh, funding from the states. Um, so pretty much they are. Let me just try and find the details about these. Have you heard of them before, I've, Safety I've, Culture? I've, I've not heard of Safety Culture, but uh, it's it's good to see that there's uh, tech coming uh, and, you know, innovation coming from regional areas that aren't Melbourne or Sydney. Um, I'm actually kind of excited about the fact that they're from Townsville, particularly, you know, considering the economy in North Queensland is, you know, mm. a bit uh, touch and go depending on, you know... Well, the thing that people might know Safety Culture for is um, one of their products called the Eye Auditor. So it's a safety checklist application used by companies all around the world. Mm. And it can sound a little dry, but I guess, you know, anything with auditing in it, there's a lot of cash there and that helps explain why there's been so much attention here. Mm -hmm. In terms of the company growth itself, um, there are 15,000 organisations using Eye Auditor globally. Um, and over 4,000 of those are in Australia, which is of no surprise. Mm -hmm. um, they've increased their staff from 85 last year to 214 now, and that's spread over Sydney, Townsville, Kansas City, Manchester and Manila. So, look, they're a local success story. Um, they've, they've got a lot of in, uh, interest from, you know, some pretty... Uh I suppose, interesting pilot ideas. Uh, schools in the US have uh, incident responses set up for active shooters on their premises. Oh, that's... So they can notify teachers in the school all at once. Um, they've got... Uh, Gee, it's grim that there's a market for that, isn't I know, it? it's sad, but it, look, it's any, anything that can kind of help people in those situations. Um, the Kens This is an interesting one. The Kensington Borough Council in, in London actually contacted Safety Culture after the Grenfell Tower block fire. Right. Uh, that uh, killed 71 so people So when they say audit, year. I guess it goes a lot beyond financial yeah. auditing and more to do with, yeah. Well, I mean, this is the thing, safety, safety culture is Sounds like it's replacing Facebook's, you know, check-in here during a disaster type of capability, but for private companies. Absolutely. And, and look, it's, it, I think it's, we've, we need to start thinking about how we can harness technology to increase our real-world safety because it's just, it's, they're becoming more and more intertwined. Makes a lot of yeah. sense. And, and anything that frees people up from using, you know, mass aggregators like Facebook to do that. Absolutely. Uh, makes sense. Mm. So speaking of speaking our favourite, uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Oh, that guy. The seamless, seamless. That was, a, that was a very good, that was almost a Warren uh, segue right there. <laughs> um, 
Mr. Mr. Zuckerberg, that guy, has uh, fronted up to the EU. We're going back to Europe, EU Parliament, to uh, talk a little bit about the Cambridge Analytica scandal and various other data issues, which ties in well with the introduction of the GPDR, uh, GDPR on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, he well, essentially, the EU Parliament said uh, we're complaining that he didn't answer their questions properly, um, which is hardly a surprise because considering how it was when he ended up sitting in front of Congress, he, he managed to dodge the questions pretty well there as well. But it, it was um, interesting to hear that he did say that. Um, Facebook expect to be compliant with the GDPR by Friday um, when they asked whether Facebook had moved the data of 11.5 million users out of reach of the law. Yeah, they're spending a lot of time using expressions like them being more proactive Mm. about issues on the side and privacy issues and fake news and what have you, but they don't go into details about what being proactive looks like. No, this is is true. And, I mean, look, there are what something like 2 billion facebook users and probably a good couple of hundred million of those are in the in, in the EU so they have a huge uh, vested interest in making sure that this company is compliant with a huge uh, part of their market, but it just mm. doesn't. Seem, it seems like they're just being complacent about it, which is hardly surprising considering who we're talking about. But still. wow, this this segment is really truly full of snark this evening, and it's rarely so. But how appropriate because we're about to go into Donald Trump news. Oh, here he we go. has shunned iPhone security because it's inconvenient. A report has said. Oh, so poor he baby. Has reportedly resisted White House security checks for uh, Twitter um, <laughs> on his phone. <laughs> For as long as five months. <laughs> for as long as he's been on Twitter. Now, this wouldn't be such a scandal, except that a big part of Hillary Clinton, um, you know, having her campaign derailed was down to all of the noise about her having an email server that was a private email server instead of one which followed, you know, the policy. Yeah, I mean, we always knew that what that uh, anything that would come up with, with Trump... Um, that was similar to what would be done with that. What was done with Hillary Clinton would probably be brushed off anyway. Well, but I mean, he he already didn't submit to you know going through the normal financial checks that you have to go to go no. through when you become a uh, president. Look, you know, no surprises. Let's get off that because it's just too dire. Well, it is really dire. But at the same time, like, why why is he? thinking that he needs to bypass security when all he does on his phone is tweet at three o'clock in the morning. It, it, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to stop thinking about him because it makes me angry. Isn't it fun to think, you know, whether he uses Hootsuite or some other sort of scheduling <laughs> software instead of just, just going at it on his phone? Do you, and do you reckon? Whether, I think, you know, because some of his... Well, the, there's themes, there's theories about whether um, you can tell the difference between the posts that he posts and then the ones that his staff are posting. Well, the ones that his staff are posting are coherent for a start. They have <laughs> punctuation and Come on, grammar. Oh, we, we're getting very, very um, oh, look, the, lost if, in the weeds the NSA, Yeah, the NSA is probably following me anyway. That's fine. Yeah. You're hugely substantial <laughs> in um, geopolitics, totally, Dan. Totally. <laughs> look, uh, in the last bit of news for the evening. Oh, uh, look, speaking of um, evil companies, Google have uh, now, Vanessa, remember when Google... I wouldn't say that fam- they're an evil no, company, No, they're not an evil company. Okay, yeah, no, there's a bit, there's a bit <laughs> of um, extrapolation there. Do you remember back in the day when Google were famous for having the motto of don't be evil? I do remember that. Yep. It was a, a classic, you know, bit of marketing that to appeal to the geeks out there. Huge. It's, and like it, it was worked. It was always hyperbole. And Absolutely. It was, you know, really, um, 
I suppose people like believed in them because of this. They, that's, you know, they that's were, true. It was seen as a visionary type of statement to put out there. Don't worry, we're becoming more and back. more massive. But, Absolutely, but you know, here is your endless gigabyte mailing box. Yeah, and surprising, no one they've just like slowly but surely moved away. But this week, they finally eliminated the "Don't Be Evil" motto. I thought they'd done it years ago, but it turns out that it was. Um, in where are we here? Oh, archives from the, Gizmodo found this out. Uh, the archives from the Wayback Machine show that the turn of phrase was removed somewhere in late April or early May. <laughs> <laughs> so they've they've stuck to it like like I, a I bad smell. Feel for them a little bit because it was a bit was sophomoric of an expression to yeah. use, and it was always going to be a nightmare to change. The Absolutely. second you take that away, it is a terrible PR story, <laughs> and it's so hubristic. Like they they knew what they would doing it was just like guys why did you even bother backing yourselves into this corner when you knew that what you were gonna do do or do not exactly do not try do not, do not try do not, not try. to be evil don't just try not don't be evil yeah exactly yeah um but it's uh google so they've actually moved what they've replaced it with is the google code of conduct is one of the ways we put google's values into practice <laughs> it's built around the recognition that everything we do in connection with our work at google will be and should be measured against the highest possible standards of ethical business conduct look you're a massive corporation what oh. are you going to do <laughs> it's interesting though that this no, is still tied so to google this this motto and mm. not alphabet as as a whole well i wonder if alphabet has a motto uh, make more money <laughs> don't, don't, don't be poor. That's what. Don't. That's what alphabets. Oh, that's horrible. Seven nineteen on Triple R. You're with Bud into it with Dan Salmon and Vanessa Tolga, and I don't know why I'm using our full names. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. People need to know. Sometimes that happens. It's seven twenty. Uh, we are so excited to be here with Eleanor Toolman from Mimitech, which is an agricultural startup. Welcome. Hello. Am I saying any of that correctly? Yeah, you got most of it correct. It's right. mimic tech. So mimic, mimic tech. technology that mimics chickens. Ooh, okay. Love it. Well, that, that's um, probably a good place to start. What, mimicking chickens, where do we go with that? Oh, look, there's any number of places we could go with that, not least the Seth Green show yeah. that I'm sure everyone is <laughs> big questioning, fan. big fans. Yeah. So the idea came because my co-founder, Sarah, actually grew up on a farm that rears and rehabilitates exotic birds. So like the big blue macaw parrots with the yellow wings. Do you guys want to guess how much one of them costs? I'm going to say, I'm going to go right out there and say like $200,000. Okay. You're, you're, <laughs> off, you're off by a factor of 10. They're about $20,000 each. That's way That's more. Which so is a lot more. of money. That's a lot for a bird. One it's bird? It's a lot for a, just one bird. Okay. So if you have one die, bad. If you have one die and leave a chick, you know, that's potentially $40,000 worth of revenue. So it was Sarah's job to look after the chick. And the way that you do that is by recreating as closely as possible what the hen would have provided to the chick. Right. But I'm sure you will not at all be surprised to hear that the McCall parrot market is not very big. <laughs> <laughs> but the chicken market is huge. So we pretty much picked up what Sarah created for macaw parrots and we put it down in the poultry industry because at the moment you can't place hens with chicks on commercial poultry farms for a whole bunch of reasons like space um, hens are incredibly territorial and you end up with almost cannibalization of chicks they don't oh recognize oh, really? they're aggressive little things and also by security it's kind of the reverse of herd immunity you can't put 200 vaccinated hens with 20,000 unvaccinated chicks right. because if they bring in the smallest anything you can lose your whole flock yes but it means chicks never receive maternal care which is 
really important for teaching and learning behaviors and mortality rates and weight gain. Socializing, I imagine. Exactly, socialization. So we are using robots to recreate the core features of maternal care in livestock. Wow. So... When we first yeah, heard dancing, this, <laughs> just slack jawed. Yeah, when it's we so cool. When we first heard this, I think like ma- many of our listeners right now, we visualised a robot chicken, and I was thinking along the lines of Wallace and Gromit's yeah. like mm. with dog, the, like the metallic dog, like a very aggressive metal shaped <laughs> chicken. <laughs> yeah, so or the you, penguin with the, yeah, with the yes. glove on the hat. Totally. So is, is it? It doesn't look like a nah. chicken. I'm sorry. I would love it to look like a chicken. I usually say that in my heart, I want it to look like a chicken <laughs> and in my wallet, it just doesn't need to. But so, that's almost a good news story in that yeah. if it if something behaves like a chicken, yeah, then if it acts maybe, like a duck, maybe, if it acts like a chicken, it maybe the like looks aren't that important. But what actually is important to these baby chicks? So about two percent of chicks die in the first week of life because they just don't work out how to eat and drink. Wow, and okay. that doesn't matter for the first couple of days because they're still absorbing the yolk sac from their time in the egg. But if they don't learn to eat on day three, then that's kind of the end. And I think that that's actually quite an ethical problem as much as it is a farming one. So we have mimicked the way that hens teach chicks to forage for food and drink. And we've created these little units that have the pecking and the noise and they attach to the side of the feeding and watering lines and they teach the chicks. And you would not believe it, but the chicks go wild for it. They come running. So so it's like a system of, I suppose, sounds and... Yeah. Cues. Exactly. It's not it's not it's not like a physical mother hen sitting there robot. No, kind of thing. while I talk about robot chickens, that's really the very much elevator pitch to use some startup sure. language there of what we do. What we do is not does not look like a chicken. It's very basic robotics, but it has a a really important and a really big impact. So how much of this behaviour did Sarah learn while you know, working with these really expensive macaws and things. And how much did you have to test and discover about how to influence baby chicken behaviour? It's it's a part of column A, part of column B. Sarah also um, did a degree in animal health and um, agriculture at the University of Melbourne, where um, I also did my undergrad. And so part of it came out of her experience there. But we essentially went through all of the literature on what constitutes maternal care in animal behavioural science. And we built this one like Frankenstein robot chicken that had all of them in it and then realised, took it round farmers and they're like, yeah, look, I see where you're going, but there's no (laughs) way we would put this in our farm. So we revised and revised and revised. Um, So Sarah and I met doing the Masters of Entrepreneurship at the University of Melbourne, where your thesis is to start a startup. And she pitched this idea and I was like, it's genius. You're a genius. And so the kind of vague division is she's the product and I'm the business. So she deals with product development and I deal with customers and trials and fundraising. So we've been working on it for a little under two years Mm. and only for the last year full-time. It was about a year part-time before that. So you've mentioned that um, you were part of Melbourne University's Accelerator Program. Yeah. Um, your company was actually one of 10 startups selected by them in yeah, that uh, was last year. That's yep. a massive achievement. We've spoken yeah. to, to their program before. Um, but I wonder, you know, what was your original pitch and have you pivoted significantly since then? It's a really good question. And 
Yes and no. The idea has always been the same, which is um, 90% of Australians eat meat and I don't see that necessarily changing anytime soon, but I do recognise that expectations of meat eaters is changing really significantly. So the shift from cage to free range is a great example of that. And now we're saying, actually, there are some really core things that we can do that build off our scientific understanding that until relatively recently, the components in robotics have not been at a scale or at a price that that legitimises this being placed in a farm. Because farms are really difficult environments for robotics. Everything has to be pressure hosed down. Everything gets really dusty. So the core idea of using robots to improve animal welfare outcomes, which thereby improves farming outcomes, has always remained the same. But the product that we've created has shifted a couple of times since then. Cool. Um, I wonder, you know, when you're looking at those core behaviours and things, have you done any reading about Temple Grandin? Oh, definitely. Yeah, because I guess she really revolutionised the the cattle industry Absolutely. in the States with her very empathetic yeah. um, sense of what cows go through in that system and, and how awful factory farming can be. Where do you see those sort of things, you know, safety considerations and things um, coming into the conversations that you're having in Australia? It's a really good question. And Temple Grandin is a huge influence on our company and on Sarah especially, who... Has Temple Grandin as this like gold dream person that she'd love to meet and we'd love to work with because her work just revolutionised the way that abattoirs in particular run. So um, some of your listeners may have heard or seen in um, the Coles and Woolworths RSPCA approved chicken meat and that uh, the RSPCA have worked with farmers and with researchers to develop a code of ethics for the chicken meat industry. And that's for both barn and for free range. Um, And to be able to get this sticker on the front of your packet of meat, you have to abide by certain expectations. And I think it's really important that we have that baseline set. And some of the parts are really important and some of the parts, um, you know, farmers question, but we as a society have, have said that animal welfare is something that we do care about and that we think is important. And Sarah and I are trying to push the boundaries of that to say, actually, what else can we include in this? And what else is important? And while we do have this current process that says you can't place hens with chicks, are there ways to work around that? Are there ways to artificially recreate that so that you can have, you can optimise the environment for the animal, not for the farmer and Mm. the farmer's Mm, needs? Absolutely. And I mean, it's great that you're working with uh, poultry and chickens because they are historically historically one of the worst conditions yeah, that, that uh, animal or that farm animals can be found in. Have you given much thought to scaling it to other breeds of or other animals? Like yeah, particularly we we're do. talking about Temple Grandin and, and the cattle stuff. Like yeah, it's Oh, we have so many yeah. ideas. One of the things that American VCs say about Australian entrepreneurs is that we come in with too many ideas. And oh my gosh, we have a laundry list of things that we want to do. One of the other things we're really interested in at the moment is the live export industry, mm. which I'm sure both of you or all of your listeners have also heard about the recent um, tragedy on the boats. And to provide a bit of context for that discussion and and I think this is one of the problems that we face as we have such a a separation between consumers and farmers. There's about a three and a half percent mortality rate in 
um, paddock of lambs. Like, mm-hmm. it just happens, you know, they eat something weird, they get a disease, it's just going to... It's part of life. Mm-hmm. Normally live export actually only has about a 2% mortality rate. You've got them in a relatively confined area, but that means that you can provide really specialised veterinary medicine and veterinary care. But what happened with this particular boat is the air conditioning is based on forward movement. So if the boat isn't moving, then the the air conditioning isn't on and the cattle or sheep don't get stay cold. Mm. So this particular uh, ship was stuck in... um, uh, in immigration or import or something. So it was at a port for, for I think, about three weeks. Gosh. And it was really actually at that point that all of the animals started to die and really understandably. But up until that point, I kind of, I feel that it's it's an, it's an industry that I'm actually not, um, I don't have that many ethical problems with. Having said that, it's, I think, something that we can always improve on because you don't always need revolutionary change. You sometimes just need evolutionary change. And that's one of the things that we're really interested in thinking about is how can we bring more of the paddock into the ship and how can we, again, optimise that environment for the animal rather than for our capitalist-based needs. Yeah, yeah, mm. it's incredibly, you know, problematic. Some of the things have been occurring, and I, I've got to say, I couldn't watch the the Four Corners or the Seven Thirty Report special mm. that was on that. And yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, are you finding that um, farmers are getting on board with what you're doing, like in in a positive way? Are, are they or are they seeing it as a criticism of the way that they're kind of running their businesses? It's really important to go to farmers and to say, and you know, to go with all the poultry puns, not to tell them how to suck eggs, mm. because they're the experts. <laughs> they're the experts. They're the eggs. Thank you. Exactly. Sorry, yeah. um, oh, look, the number of poultry puns you can come up with when you start to think about it might really fly under the radar, but we'll definitely we'll learn who rules the roost in oh, yeah, this conversation. Right. <laughs> right. So, to, I'm sorry, I've now forgotten what your question was. I can't what? remember something about farmers. Yes, asking about. Um, Farmers' reactions to to you bringing in a solution to a problem they may not know that they have. I don't know if they think that they don't have it. The Australian Productivity Commission released a report in 2005 that said that farmers need to double productivity on their farm every generation to remain in business. That's every 15 years, which is huge. And you can't just... Outrageous ask. It is. And you can't just double the size of your farm or double the size of your flock. So every improvement you can make is important. And as long as you go into farmers with an open mind and say, look, this is what we've come up with. What do you reckon? And when they look at your Frankenstein first prototype and go, oh, mate, I think you can do better than that. And you're like, <laughs> okay, we can, we'll go back and we'll have another go and we'll come back. So there's one um, poultry farmer in particular um, outside Bendigo that we've been working with since the start of last year who's just been amazing. And he takes my calls and he talks me through it. And at one point he's like, have you considered backyard farmers? And I was like, yeah, I have, but you guys are where the money is. And he's like, okay, well, then you need to go back to the drawing board because I wouldn't buy this. So it's, it's, it's really valuable mm. to get it's that. It's important back. to yeah. take them along for the journey and not go in and, and tell them how to do their job. So let's get away from the the front line and actually go back to the R and D of this product. And you know, 
your background sounds like it's more of the business side and your co-founder Sarah comes with the agricultural and animal health background but did either of you have any of the like robotic skills that you needed to to put into play with this concept? No neither of us did we both picked it up along the way so I've done a little bit of coding and Sarah worked on a farm so she had some really practical hands-on engineering experience. So was the accelerator program helpful in syncing you up with people with those skills or did you do it yourselves? We actually had the engineering company effectively approach us through our existing relationships. Amazing. So we um, raised money through a an angel organisation called Scale. So Scale Angel Investors only invest in companies with at least one female founder, which is really oh, we, fantastic. We've been fortunate to interview Amanda Durham from Scale oh, here. And that, yeah. I have I have a hell of a lot of respect for that organisation. So our the engineering company that we worked with actually came out of one of our contacts there. It's an organisation called Tulip and they make a whole bunch of really odd bits and pieces, which mm-hmm. are sometimes my favourite kind of people. Yes. So they make... The big accordion bellows on buses and trams to help them go around corners and spray tan machines and scent machines for hotel lobbies. So they have a knowledge of how to make things work in situ in a way that's really interesting and really helpful. And a lot of their staff are upskilled fitters and turners or factory floor hands. So they know how to make things work in practice, which was really what we needed because we couldn't just take a CAD designer out to a farmer and be like, guys what do you think whereas if you can take something physical out then farmers can touch it and feel it and see how it looks in the shed and really better understand where you're coming from are they based here or overseas they're based here they're based in hallam out in in the suburbs Gee, that's fantastic because so many stories we hear of entrepreneurs outsourcing their making end up going to china and mm. then having to deal with like the tyranny of distance or mm. in the case of neuro headphones actually bringing in partners from china because they wanted them involved from the ground up and moving there for the last few months of production to make sure that everything was was right that was a really unique solution to that problem but great to hear you've got some locals yeah well I have to I have to preface this by saying we may not always stay local sure but Mm. getting someone who was in Melbourne on the ground that we can have fast iterations with was really important to us have you had much involvement with kind of the I suppose I suppose government bodies like Agriculture Victoria, have they mm. have they expressed any interest in being involved with stuff like you, with what you're doing? Or? They have. We've particularly been working with a company, or oh, it's not a company, I'm not sure what the time is. They're called AgriFutures. So to give you a bit of a, a context, the agriculture industry is really heavily siloed and each kind of product often has their own board. So you might have heard about the Australian Wheat Board or mm. Egg Board. So a farmer will pay a levy and that organisation will then do R&D on their behalf or marketing on their behalf. So AgriFutures represents all of the new and emerging industries. So things like buffalo milk and camel milk and honey and tea tree oil, but they also look after chicken meat. So mm. we contacted them about two years ago to say we're working on this really cool thing what do you reckon and they said oh are you a farmer and we go uh no they go oh are you a researcher we're like uh no we're a startup and they go oh well we're not really sure how to engage with you so we actually then took them on a journey as well with us to say this is where the innovation in Australia is coming from. And it'd be really fantastic if you could set up processes to engage with us. So next time you get a call from a startup, 
you have an idea of what they need and yeah, what they frame want. frame of reference. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, like a shout out to, to Michael Beer, who is their head of R&D, who's just been really excellent in working with us and helping build those bridges. Mm. It's really interesting to hear that that's the state that we're at in agricultural tech. We see so many really interesting trends emerging from that sector here. Um, ones that come to mind are things like sat- satellite imaging of crops and all the work in weather tracking. Um, Laurie Zion had that had that book recently about our weather obsession and it was amazing how much in there was about farmers' regional knowledge and mm. it was tremendous. Yeah, and seeing um, RFID and sheep, um, keeping them, you know, keeping track of sheep across Victoria at the moment. They've, they've got a huge program of doing that right yeah, now. So yeah. yeah, and um, all the sensors that have been used in soil and water, um, vertical farming and one of the ones I'm really interested in is supply chain transformation and, and how we're... I guess you spoke about it earlier, how consumers are so much more interested in where things are coming from, that they're ethically sourced, that they can understand that that journey the whole way through the process. Um, how much are any of these trends sort of impacting on the sort of work you're doing, if at all? Not a hell of a lot, to mm. be honest, because, you know, when you're in your own startup, it tends to be heads down, very really focused. very focused, trying to make the robots work and make something that farmers are interested in. But it is important to also understand what other trends are going on. And there are some really cool things happening in agriculture that it's, it's often quite hard to see because people, you know, they see the products when they hit the grocery store, but they don't understand what goes on before that. So there's really um, often this blurring of the lines between ag tech and food tech that I, I personally find really frustrating because ag tech is like pre-farm gate and food tech is normally like making a nice new protein bar. Um, but, you know, things like blockchain for food provenance tracking is so cool. Often you end up with these tins of soup and you have no idea where the ingredients came from or how it got to that point. Whereas now if you can start to understand, oh, well, the carrots came from here and the pork came from here, then I think it really allows a a consumer to to plug into their food supply chain and have an understanding of what they're eating. That's actually one use of blockchain that seems really um, sensible to me because it's gotten to the point where people know consumers care and they're almost using marketing to fake it. It's like take a picture of our can and we'll show you one of the farms that that tomato might have come from. And you're like, but it's not actually the farm and it's just, it's this faux transparency. It's, it's, kind of problematic for me um were any of the other uh 10 you know you're one of 10 startups chosen by the the maps program last year were any others uh in the agricultural sector no we were the only ones um but there were a couple in med tech which i have a lot of time and empathy for because it's such a hard industry to get into there's actually not a lot of legislation around um our product and the space that we're in because what we're trying to do is is improve animal welfare and so while rspca have set like the bottom benchmark anything above that's a bonus whereas from the med tech side everything is legislated to kingdom come. And on one hand, I can really understand that because we're dealing with people's lives. But on the other hand, you feel that there could be a little bit of loosening up to allow for some more innovation in the space. Yeah, I just um, saw someone tweeting the other day about how they'd had a, a recent scan of some sort. I think it was an MRI. 
And they were a little bit horrified to be handed a physical, you know, massive A3 (laughs) scan and just went, where is my digital copy? Surely there's more information than this. I can't believe people are still moving these things around. Although I did have hip surgery a couple of years ago and it was Keyhole and they gave me a DVD of the inside of my own hip. This is what we want to hear. Which Absolutely. I have not actually watched because it kind of grosses me out. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like taking home your tonsils in a jar but exactly. in a completely different way. I love it. I love it. Look, we've learned so much. Um, what should people look out for from Mimic Tech next? Well, we're about to go into fundraising, which is really exciting. It's, there's often a bit of an odd distinction about what's Series A, what's Seed. So I'm calling it a pre-Series A round. So we're hoping to raise a million dollars and we're currently in discussions with a number of VC companies, which is really exciting. But if people would like to be part of it, then we'd love the help and support. And also, if anyone is a chicken farmer or knows any chicken farmers, we would love to talk to you. Preferably meat, but also eggs very happy to. So please do reach out. We're at mimictech.com, which is M-I-M-I-C-T-E-C.com. Eleanor, it's been very illuminating chatting with you this evening. Thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Some, uh, some exciting uh, world uh, in the world of robotics and uh, agriculture. That was, that was really fascinating. Yeah. So something else in the world of robotics coming at us is uh, just something that caught my eye. So there's a a restaurant in Boston called Spice with a Y. It's been backed by a Michelin-starred chef and it's founded by some MIT graduates. This should be interesting. Yeah. So its premise is that they're using robots to produce healthy, fast food at affordable prices. Okay. So the issue was, as MIT students, they found that a lot of the meals um, that they could get cooked for them pretty quickly mm-hmm. um, from little restaurants and things tended to be around the 10 12 15 dollar mark and they were poor mm-hmm. and they thought oh, it's you know the food that we can get for our prices is fast food that's really unhealthy and we don't want our health to go downhill and that's I think something that uh, any of us who have ever been students would be able to relate to yeah yeah it's very mm-hmm. relatable so they thought what if we tried to decrease the cost of food? By saving on labour expenses. Now, this is exactly something that a lot of people are pretty concerned about in the future, <laughs> like the displacement of labour by mm. robotics. But it is something we're going to have to face and and think about really creatively. And uh, what is interesting is that they, they have been able to save costs in a place that seems to design bowls of food that remind me of poke bowls. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, they do look a lot like poke bowls. Um, um, so, so it gives the patron a bit of choice between different ingredients and then the robot constructs what people would eat. Okay. Yeah. So it's 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 an interesting idea. I, I, I see that they still accept uh, they accept cash, which is strange for a robotic company. Um, you do you order on a touch screen. Well, it's in the states. Yeah, you know, that's a little true. bit more of a cash. Economy. Well, then they're not. They're, well, I suppose they're not about to uh, to tip the robot. That's an an interesting idea, especially considering that I mean, in the US in particular. Uh, you know, it's known for people who work in hospitality don't necessarily get the best wages. And so they're cutting that cost quite considerably. That's, that's, that's interesting, that's, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I, I, do, I do worry what, about the implications this has for people who already work in the hospitality sector well, as well. I th- but, yeah, yeah, I think we have to think about those issues um, definitely, but, but slightly separate to this. Mm. Uh, it is interesting it's cool. that it's open seven days a week and the hours are it's like 12, almost 12 hours a day. You get your meal in three minutes. So it is... 
appealing to the student market. Mm. Uh, yeah, I will be seeing more things like this. I thought it was it was pretty, um, yeah, an interesting development. And but yeah, hopefully it can prompt these conversations about what do we do with that displacement of labour? How do we tax companies, you know, for their like payroll or what have you, the way we would for employees now? If mm. that money's not coming in, you know, the taxation base is actually going to shrink. Absolutely. So that becomes significant. Yeah, totally. And I mean, look, it's it's something that we've... I suppose when, when you look at, you know, the history of how the future is um, represented, you look at, you know, the Jetsons or whatever it is, the, the thing that always seemed really out there was this idea that your food was created by a, a machine. And it's it's almost like we've been resisting that one particular thing for a really long time. It's like, no, I want my food to be created by someone who can taste it and who knows what they're doing and that kind of thing. So it's interesting to see... This, I mean, we've, we've obviously seen developments like this in the past, but this... Well, it's yeah. not remote to us. I mean, in Collingwood, there is a company that's experimenting with a robot barista and there are real constraints on, on like, the flexibility that that robot barista has. Like, maybe it can't cope with soy at the moment, but even the fact that that exists in a consistent way is very interesting. Um, we should really organise to speak with those people a little bit down the track because mm. we love our, our coffee here. We do, we uh, do. But, yeah, it's, it's not something that's just far away and only when MIT students are involved. It's actually creeping in in all sorts of interesting places and I think, you know, we need to keep discussing it and the implications and thinking about how we can mitigate some of the bad uh, factors but also, you know, look at what the benefits will be. Absolutely. It is an exi- it's an exciting development. Yeah. Uh, there was a, an article that, that caught my eye um, I love when an article catches your eye. Yeah, which was in Motherboard, which is Vice's technology section, which I do love. <laughs> yep. it's, it's pretty well written. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a piece written about how the military tried to record whole human lives 15 years ago. Uh, so it's, it's a story about what happened before Facebook. Um, so they created a cyber diary. Everything was cyber something back yeah. then. It was called Life Log. Oh, it's all alliterative and beautiful. So it was by DARPA. Now, DARPA invented the internet. Um, they've, well, the protocols that the internet lives on and the internet. Um, and in mid-2003, they decided that this program would try and diarise people's lives. Now, I can't say that I'm the sort of person who hasn't thought of this before. Um, and, uh, you know, I've often thought, wouldn't it be great to know every piece of music you ever listened to in your life and then track your influences based on oh. that? For See, instance, yeah, I mean, that's or everything you ever ate in your life, mm. and how you know how that compares with your partner, and why that means that one of you doesn't like eating pineapples or whatever. Logging everything you've done is it's it's a, it's kind of it's a seductive black, thought, isn't it, it? It is, but it's also an episode of Black Mirror. Like it's sure. it, 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 I, I don't want to get all down on this really interesting idea, but then at the same time, people we, we've gone from that point of you know wanting to uh, or wanting to get people to log their entire lives to encourage or get, getting people excited about doing that voluntarily. So Absolutely. So we've gone from this idea of like really they, they were trying to get people to do it and now they don't need to try anymore because... They've, people just do it because they have endless fascination in themselves. Exactly. It's, they've, they've managed to tap into everyone's narcissism. Completely, completely. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't need to be stopping so cynical. But it is it is interesting also to, to look at how people's values and, and opinions change over time and where they come from. Um, 
they uh, saw military value in having a comprehensive record of people's lives. Yes. Um, and sorry, I'm getting distracted by the sound of kick drums. Which no, 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 <laughs> I'm hoping that the audience can't hear that too much, <laughs> but I can hear them a lot. Um, so pretty much there was a $7.3 million investment into cognitive computing. Mm-hmm. So they were experimenting with artificial intelligence even in 2002. And really it was a secretary that could learn by watching. Now we're at a point where people have listening devices in their homes that try and act like secretaries. Mm. So really everything old is new again. Um, They were seeing how being able to model everyday life um, would give them a lot of information and and help predict people's behaviour. They were thinking that this could help identify potential terrorists by looking at things like cross-referencing phone calls and internet traffic and bank records and other personal data. Was it like profiling almost? Like they they were they they would be able to kind of follow someone's you know entire record of themselves and use that as a well. They're not showing it in the sense of profiling. They're more showing it in the sense of actual identification Mm. rather than identifying groups. Yeah, but it is a a short um, jump from there. Anyway. It is far too long to go into the details, but it's well worth a read. So if you're interested in that, look up LifeLog on Motherboard at Vice and, um, and have a bit of a think about it. It's, it says some interesting things philosophically and politically about the way we live. Uh, a couple, there's an opportunity that's come up that I think is really worth mentioning because it's so hyper-local and um, it might appeal to some of our listeners. So if you love code and love culture, Acme are actually hiring at the moment. They're hiring a team of creative technologists and backend developers to create some next-gen technology. Um, this has come off the back of the recent announcement that the Victorian government has um, funded an additional $3.16 million in the 2018-2019 budget for the redevelopment of Acme. So in addition to developing designs for um, a physical and technological overhaul of the Fed Square attraction, the renewal of Acme involves a complete redevelopment of the delivery of their content and the technology that underpins it. So they're recording, recruiting a small team um, this team will be responsible for creating microservices and tools, like they're calling it the museum operating system, which is really cute, the museum OS, to try and make the new museum experiences come alive. Um, it's an amazing opportunity. The applications close on the 3rd of June and um, you can find out all about it on the ACME website, acme.net.au. But you could have a massive impact on the experience of Victorians and people who travelled to Melbourne and you know, check out Acme. Acme is an amazing resource that we have in this city and it would be uh, silly to not want to get involved in the development and evolution of something that's so important to our culture. And it's a team. It's not just like one position. So You I can really, meet new friends. Well, I really think if you're remotely interested and, and have some skills, um, apply. Uh, I think that they're interested in full-time positions, but there is an option for some part-time there too. So I don't know, just... Submit and take your chances. Get involved. Do it. Another thing to get involved with is the Free Play Independent Games Festival, which is happening right now. I can feel it. It's it, 
on right now in the city. It's so good. There is, and we had the uh, team from Free Play in a few weeks ago. Uh, so much exciting stuff going on. Uh, online sessions, workshops, uh, the checkpoint series, the uh, testing grounds, Free Play hover garden down uh, on the party down on Saturday night. I think are there still tickets available to that? I think. Oh, it's it, you can just wander. You can in. just wander yeah, in. Yeah, it's it's. Fine. It's fine, yeah. It's free. Uh, board games up late at Acme X. Um, yeah, Acme uh, Screen. The with- conference itself is running um, over both days of the weekend. Um, there's also the Free Play Awards where indie developers all around the place submit games and then they have an award show that you can go to, which oh. is very exciting. So good. So yeah. very good. Um, there's a lot to check out if you want to. Um, they're on Facebook but also at freeplay.net.au. Well worth a look. So exciting. So we want to say a big thank you to our guest, Eleanor Tolman from Mimic Tech tonight, telling us about robot chickens and agricultural technology. So cool. Yeah, it was really interesting and um, it was great to hear the considered approach that they're taking. And we want to say a big thank you to uh, you for listening this evening. We've been barred into it and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Do stay tuned for the International Pop Underground of Anthony Carew up next. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.